Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So trade front and centre once again as we count you down to a Federal Reserve decision. No news conference, a statement, which I'm sure that Tom Porcelli will be looking at closely. RBC Capital's chief economist joining us here in New York. Tom, good morning to you. Good morning, gentlemen. How is everyone? Everything is great. And we're wondering how um, gradual rate hikes for now, how long for now really is. For, for now is at least until the end of next year. Um, you know, we th- this has been our longstanding call. Uh, um, uh, it, and finally, uh, I think the market is starting to buy into it a bit more. They're still not quite convinced on 19, um, but you'll get two more hikes this year and you'll get four hikes next year. Uh, and I, look, it, it's not a heroic case. I mean, I think this is what people forget. Um, if you have economic activity that's accelerating, um, labor dynamics that continue to suggest that uh, the consumer is going to be in very good shape, uh, then I think that'll lend itself to the Fed continuing this process of of normalizing rates. So uh, I don't think we're going out on a limb. There's great uncertainty shared by many about 2019 into 2020. Yep. Um, if you took a 12-month rolling view of the economy, yeah. waking up in 2019, yeah. looking ahead, yeah. four hikes? Yeah. And in fact, what I would say is economic activity actually doesn't look very different in 19 than it does right now. And here we are with a year where you're going to see four hikes. So, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the sort of the right framework to think about it in. Um, you know, look, if we were, uh, if this was any uh, standard uh, economic expansion and we were here in year 10, then yeah, you'd make the case that the Fed was basically about to um, sort of stop the process. Yeah. But it's actually, I would say that the real risk is that you actually see more hikes, not fewer hikes from this Fed. Well, let's just take the forecast from the street. The median estimate for growth next year is about 2.5% for 2020. Yep. It's 1.8%. Where's RBC on that? Um, so for this year, we're right around 3%, and for next year, we're also around 3%. Um, so again, just sort of the idea of continuing the expansion. We actually don't forecast beyond uh, the yep. sort of the next two years. Um, so I uh, will not get myself into compliance trouble by saying anything about that. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, uh, look, I, I would tell you that if you want like sort of a clue for where you're going to be in yeah. 2020, if there's, we don't see any fundamental deterioration on the horizon. Um, so this is really interesting. Going into the Federal Reserve decision, a lot of people have made a lot out of the fact that the Federal Reserve is at odds with this administration, that sustainable 3% GDP growth just is not sustainable. Yeah. Um, you're on the side of the administration then. You think it is sustainable. Yeah. So let me not say I'm taking sides. <laughs> of course. I, I, of course. I, just I, on this particular debate. Yeah, exactly. I don't <laughs> want to be on the side of any administration. Um, but what I would simply say is, uh, yeah, look, I think that 3% uh, is um, relatively easy to achieve as long as labor market dynamics yeah. continue to improve much as we see them improving. But, you know, what I would say is getting north of 3%, boy, do I think the hurdle is very high for that. Um, I don't think you're going to see anything close to 4% on a sustained basis. But interestingly, we here we are with a four-handle right. four growth number uh, in Q2. And guess what's going to happen in Q3? You're going to see another four handle. So I think this allows the administration to actually take a victory lap around four percent. We don't think four percent is sustainable. Um, and not to bore your listeners, but the reality for next quarter's four percent is it's just an inventory snapback. Right. Um, you know, you're going to get it's going to add one full percentage point to growth. 
um, <laughs> consumption all the while will be around two and a half percent. And every business person listening to this is going, Purcelli's nuts. Okay, September 26, <laughs> November 8, December 19. Then we go into next year, January 30, March 20, May 1, June 19. I'm looking at the cost of money, a two-year yield, 2.67%. If I get a Purcelli three or four rate increases, where's my two-year yield come May 1st, 2019? Yeah, so you're looking at a re like an incredibly flat yield curve. Uh, there's no question about it. Part of the problem, particularly if you just think about like sort of the term structure more broadly, um, you know, if you think about, um, you know, the thing that really does the driving from a, a back end of the curve perspective, 10-year yields in particular, you know, you tend to have some inflationary impulse that really tends to push um, uh, back end rates a little higher. The reality is we just don't see a lot of inflationary pressure. But right if, now. are you talking about a 350 on the two-year yield, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you... What does that do to business? What does that do to nominal spirit? So here, l let's just make sure we sort of hash out this whole thing. So we have, by the end of next year, we actually have funds at 350, um, and we have tens at 375. So you're looking at a completely flat uh, yield curve. Uh, it's, again, it's in sort what of unavoidable reality. What does that do reality. to business spirit? So what I would say is, if we continue to print these job numbers, if we continue to print uh, firm wage pressures, if um, ISM uh, is able to continue to hold up, which again, let, let me be clear, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like these are guesses. Um, we have every reason to believe that they will. Um, then so too will the corporate psyche. I'm just wondering what the rest yeah. of the bank at RBC think of this call. Where's your credit team? What are your credit team thinking? If you can just get the front end yep. all the way up to 3.5%, What's my incentive to take risk with high yield as tight as it is right now? But tell, tell me where we are in the cycle, right? Tell me, like, in other words, I, I don't think it's a single variable equation. You okay. can't just simply say, hey, by the way, but, um, you know, yields are this. Well, that's not that simple. Tell me what else is happening, right? If everything else continues to move along at a reasonable pace, then everything shifts higher. Um, and I think that's the right way of thinking about so, that. So basically, Tom, yeah. and, and just to dig deeper into your framework yeah, for please. thinking about this, you think there will be a big supply side response in the U.S. economy then? Yeah. So it's funny. If we think about sort of the notion of aggregate demand, um, aggregate demand is obviously always a function of what's happening from a labor perspective, right? It always comes back to labor. Um, and so if you're able to continue to push labor firmer, which, which let's keep in mind, we are now actually getting to the tightest part of the labor cycle right now, um, which guess what happens at the tightest part of the labor cycle? wage pressures really accelerate. So then you all of a sudden have an additional catalyst for aggregate demand. So you think productivity picks up because people are going to have to invest. CapEx is going to have to pick up. And I would up. tell you productivity already is picking up. Now, again, is it to the point where we want to see it? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a, a debatable well, point. But the reality is productivity has picked up. And I would further add, think of it this way. Right now, we were, I would say all the pieces are in place to actually have a really nice little CapEx run here. One, commercial industrial um, lending standards have eased. Um, that tends to lead outright lending. Um, two, if you think about um, where we are from uh, an equipment perspective in the United States, the average age of equipment in the United States is about 10 years old. That's actually very uh, um, mm. old as U.S. by U.S. standards. So that would also suggest that at a minimum, we could be on the verge of a replacement cycle in the United States. Companies are flush with cash. How many companies have we heard now say, hey, by the way, on the back of repatriation, remember how we said we were going to use that for stock buybacks? Right. 
Um, yeah, we're actually going to use some of that for CapEx, too. So I would say the pieces are in place, actually, to have that uh, scenario play out. We go on and on. This has been great. Congratulations on your wage analysis over the last 24 months. It's been great. Thank Tom you, sir. Pizzelli, uh, with us with RBC. Really thought-provoking stuff this morning. Yeah, and, and I don't think anybody's prepared, John, for a 3%, let alone three-quarter, 330, 360. Never mind a, a repeat of the four handle we saw in the previous quarter in this quarter. Well, that would be something. Well. Yeah, and I would say that, John, can we agree that that's an outlier call? It's an outlier call, but Tom picks on something quite important. Many people have focused on the export numbers fading in the next quarter. Yes. What they haven't picked up on, and I haven't heard much of, is the fact that the inventory number in the previous quarter actually cancelled out right. the contribution from trade in the last quarter. And Tom, mm -hmm. I guess that's your point, yeah. is that yes, export might trade in the, it might fade in the next quarter, but the inventory build is going to offset it anyway. Yeah, the, you'll get an. Uh, uh, in fact, it's a one full percentage point increase from inventories alone, which is just astounding. And again, make no mistake, we don't think a number yeah. like that's re uh, repeatable. Which is why, as I said earlier, we don't think four percent growth is going oh, yeah. to be sustained. You'll shift back down closer to you know roughly three percent, which is still above a lot of the, not the gloom crew, but people. Well, that it's are certainly, more cautious. A it's, a, it's above the crowd on the rest of the street. Yeah. Um, it, it, we can say yeah, that with some conviction. Yeah. You can just see it in the yeah. estimates. Are, are you going to be ready, John, today for one of my other properties, which is the Fed decides? Um, I'm going to watch unlike, from home, probably. Unlike the real yield, we... we... <laughs> I do watch you um, when the Fed decides. Do you? Just, I just watch it it's from the smart. comfort of my You don't home. watch me. You watch <laughs> Diane Swank, Jeff Rosenberg, and I, I chin Scott Minard. And Scarlet Food. Food. Yeah, exactly. And you're yeah. sort of on the side getting frustrated. I'm way on the side, yeah. You know, no, Scarlett, she's tough. Have you got Scott coming in? That'll be good. Scott Miner coming Fantastic. in is very good. Scarlett Fu is tough as nails. Yeah. I mean, she's brutal. She, she's got, she elbows me. Tom, shut up. <laughs>
Um, last time I met with uh, Chao, Chairman Chao, the chairman of SASAC, who controls most of the SOEs in China, it was pretty clear in his discussion that the restructuring of the steel industry, the restructuring of the aluminum is here to say, which means that China will continue to buy high-quality product, and it's a great piece of news for Rio Tinto. Well, JS, at the moment, though, just to talk about China a little bit further, do you see them hitting an inflection point where they do start to, to boost internal demand by shifting towards stimulus and pulling away from deleveraging? Is that a scenario you can see playing out? Yeah, I think I think it could happen. It could happen absolutely. I think they have been able to manage the the debt level in a pretty good way. Um, you know, I'm one of the most optimist person in relation to their ability to manage their debt level, and I've been saying it on this program a few times in the past. Today, I'm not concerned about their ability to manage the debt at all. Um, the economy is still growing. You know, 6.7% as they managed to deliver in the second quarter of this year. If you look at it by any kind of other standards, other geographies, it's a massive number. So today, China is still growing. It's not growing as fast as it used to be. There's still lots of raw material, and Rio Tinto is very well placed to benefit from it. In many ways, though, Rio Tinto also in the eye of the storm when it comes to the trade story, JS. Many people would point to the fact that you're the second largest aluminum producer outside of China, the biggest exporter of aluminum into the United States from Canada. That puts you in a little bit of a point of tension at the moment, JS. I don't see that tension in the numbers. Do you have the confidence that it will stay that way? Well, let's be absolutely clear. I mean, let me give you an example. It's absolutely clear we are very strong players in aluminium. You know that the bulk of the aluminium we produce in Canada is sold in the U.S. We represent around one-third of all the aluminium, or should I say aluminium, consumed in the U.S. And today, there have been no issues whatsoever. The imp there have been no material impact in relation to the trade and the tariffs and so on and so forth. Because the way the pricing works, it means that the tariffs today are paid by our customer and the end user in the U.S. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is we need to step back. You know, the best interest from an end user in the U.S. is to have access to a low-cost, reliable source of aluminium. And some people would say access to a green source of aluminium. And today, the aluminium smelters that we have in Canada are the best. They are not even in the first quarter of the cost curve. They are in the first D side. And if you combine this, this with two things, one is they are hydro-based, so it's a source out of water, and that's the, in terms of energy. And the second element, if you think about the uh, partnership we signed recently with Apple and with Alcoa to develop inert anode technology for aluminium smelter, pretty soon they will be the greenest of the greenest across the industry. Very low cost, very reliable source of aluminium, very green. I believe that is in the best interest of the end user in the U.S. to have access to this material. So today, to answer your question in relation to trade between the U.S. and Canada for aluminium, no issues whatsoever. So, Jess, today it doesn't matter what I throw at you. You seem to be very optimistic and confident. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. When I woke up this morning and came into the office and switched on the Bloomberg terminal and saw London trading, the stock was down hard. The stock is still down by almost 4%. What is your read on what's going on with the stock this morning? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. I mean, first of all, is the entire mining business or so mining industry was down this morning when I look at it as well. That's one aspect. The second aspect is, you know, let's step back. You know, I'm not driving this company on the back of the share price of a few hours of trading in London or wherever or in New York. We'll see when it opens. You know, this is a company which will have been there for 146 years. We've just delivered $7.2 billion of return to our shareholders, including the highest dividend in the entire history of the company. We have a sound business. What is very important, and back to your previous question, there is uncertainty in the marketplace. So what we need to do is to have a very resilient business case on the back of balance sheets, on the back of the quality of our portfolio, on the back of the quality of our performance, in order to make sure that we deliver on our commitment to a shareholder, which is to deliver a superior return in the short, medium, and long term. And what we've delivered this 
morning, $7.2 billion of return. If you think about what we delivered last year on the full year, which was just below $10 billion, those are big money. Big ticket items, yeah. we're just delivering on our commitment. So let's see what the share price do, does in the coming weeks and months. I've got two minutes late, left, JS, and I've got two questions for you. The increase in costs. Cost inflation is looking like a little bit of a problem on the margin. Didn't see it in the Anglo numbers. Why do I see it in Rio? Well, I think what you see in Rio is, is two things. First of all, is we did acknowledge that inflation was coming back fast, and we acknowledge it as early as November or December, whereas maybe some of our competitors have not done it. But the second aspect is we've taken actions early on. That's what we call our mind-to-market productivity program. And all in all, what you see today is the ability to maintain our EBDA margins. And you saw 43% EBDA margin, which compares to 44% on the full-year basis last year. $9.2 billion of EBDA. $7.2 billion of return to our shareholders today. Final question, Jess, and I'm going to leave the most antagonising question until last because then you get to leave and I don't have to deal with it. You've just promised $7 billion to investors. You've basically said there's more to come. The stock's still down. There's no real sign of growth coming from this company. The critics would say this mining company, which should be very cyclical, has just become a utility. It's become boring. Why is that a good thing, JS? <laughs> Hold on. We have to be clear, our commitment to shareholders is very simple. We have committed to deliver a superior return in the short, medium and long term. That's the first point. And we had to re-establish our track record. Uh, like the rest of the industry, last 10, 15 years of the industry have not been very good. Last couple of years for us have been very good. We delivered $10 billion last year and we delivered 7.2 for the first six months of this year. Now at the same time, is we are very clear that growth has to be an element of our strategy. Because if you don't grow in the mining business, you disappear because of depletion. We have some attractive growth options. We were one of very few, maybe the only one investing at the bottom of the cycle. Think about the investment we did in, in the iron ore last year. Think about the investment we are currently doing in bauxite in, uh, in Queensland. Think about the, uh, the investment we're doing in copper and gold in Mongolia at this point in time. So we have some growth options in our portfolio. Um, what is very important for us is to focus on, on growth, which is of high quality, and my view, is, is the old mantra of value over volume. It's better to deliver a few projects but do them very well on time, on budgets, in the safe manner than trying to pursue too many things at the same time and have an average performance. Our mantra is about value over volume. Our mantra is about creating value for our shoulders. Our mantra is not about being big for the sake of it. Jean-Sebastien Jacques, the CEO of Rio Tinto. Jay, it's always great to catch up with you. Guys, back to you. John Furrow, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that this morning. Uh, in conversation on mining on China and on uh, Rio Tinto. Francine, I believe we're going to Tesla right now. Yeah, we are going to Tesla, and Tesla planning to invest some $5 billion in a possible Chinese factory. This is a nice Bloomberg scoop. It's according to a person familiar with the situation. And this, of course, comes at probably an inopportune time because of the trade war in the U.S., which makes establishing production in China more imperative for the electric car pioneer. So I'm not sure whether it's actually a supply chain problem or whether building a factory in China gives it the edge because then it can export to the region if trade concerns were to escalate. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Asia News Desk editor, Emma O'Brien, in Beijing, who can kind of, you know, cut through the noise to, to make sense of all of this. So, Emma, is this a good move or is it a bad move? It's not to supply parts, right? Is it to actually build cars in China that then they can export regionally? 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, it is to build uh, entire cars, Model S sedans in China. It has uh, sort of been speculated about and in train since before the trade war really heated up. But uh, Elon Musk didn't really seal the deal to build this factory in Shanghai until a week after that uh, first round uh, of tariffs uh, from the Trump administration on, on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports came into force. So it did uh, look as though Tesla was acting on that because uh, the cost of exporting uh, its cars to China increased when China retaliated against uh, that Trump move. Uh, so it does look as though they are trying to really secure that uh, local manufacturing base in what is their second largest uh, market in the world. Um, Emma, talk to me a little bit about, you know, financing. Are there, do, you, do you think or are we in our reporting, do we think that they're going to Chinese money to help finance this or is it money from abroad? Well, that's our understanding, uh, that they will try and finance uh, at least part of this within China, which is quite intriguing. Uh, it's a big amount of money, as you've said, $5 billion. Uh, Tesla has uh, under $4 billion in free cash at the moment. Uh, so I guess uh, they'll try and do this uh, via loans. Uh, Elon Musk has said he doesn't want to issue any new shares or bonds. Uh, so I guess they might look to loans to do this. Uh, but it is quite interesting that they will try yeah. and tap uh, the local market here to build this factory. I think, I think Emma, you just hit the, you hit the heart of the matter, which is they really don't want to dilute and, and issue new bonds and new uh, equity. How does this fold into state-owned enterprises? I, I, if, if they do loans, is Mr. Musk looking for some form of you know traditional foreign JV, or is he looking for some linkage that literally makes it a state-owned enterprise? Our understanding is that he really wants to go it alone uh, here in China. It's been yeah, a big but, but point Emma, with Emma, him he that he doesn't go... want uh, Emma, investment. Emma, you just told me he doesn't want to do bonds and stocks. You sound like Elon Musk on a conference call. He can't have it both ways. <laughs> Which way does he want it? Well, in terms of, I guess, uh, ownership stake in the factory is what I mean. He wants to sort of out own it outright. Uh, but yes, uh, if you are going to raise the money uh, here in China, then it does open the prospect of state-owned enterprises, state-owned banks, state-owned uh, yeah. other entities <clears throat> being involved. That is a factor. Yeah. Very smart. Emma, thank you so much. Emma O'Brien with a reality there that somehow I don't think we're going to hear in the Tesla conference call uh, today. Now let's talk banks and this trade standoff between the U.S. and China may be heating up again. Bloomberg understands that the Trump administration will propose more than doubling its planned tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports. Now this comes amid reports that the offices of Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the Chinese Vice Premier Li He are privately discussing ways to re-engage in negotiations. So how is the trade tensions actually affecting markets and investments? Well, joining us now for an exclusive interview is Andrea Orcel. He's the president of the investment bank at UBS and of course in the second quarter the investment bank also led by Orchel delivered a stellar performance led by surging equities and FX trading. So welcome to surveillance Andrea and of course Thank congratulations you. on your last quarters. Overall how do you see the markets um, you know uh, improving from now on? Are we going to see more volatility? Is it going to be good volatility or is this, is this kind of you know central bank normalization still a utopia? Well obviously 
we have a uh, strong underlying economic growth and that will continue with the US continuing to boom. Emerging markets are still quite resilient and I'm holding Europe and the UK a little bit less good. But I think the market dynamics are quite different. We have seen a lot of volatility and a lot of influence from uh, political events or politically driven events. You talked about trade wars, you, you can talk about Brexit, you can talk about a lot of other things like that, that will continue to move the markets. We think the markets are actually quite complacent, um, quite leveraged. We don't see a lot of buying activities, so if we have some reaction, it can hurt, but we are overly positive for the second half of this year and we're prepared for it. What do you worry most about the second half of the year? So it's not a kind of sudden correction of the market? Well, I think we could have some, uh, some whipped effect from, uh, from some of these events. I mean, when we talk about trade wars, everybody's concerned. But at UBS, we, we have actually prepared a set of scenarios and we do think it could take anywhere between 50 basis points and a point out of global growth in the worst case scenario. I don't think that that is fully priced in. There could be positives or negative, but if you go into a Q3, which is notably less liquid because people are on holidays and everything else, and you have some of those comments, the reaction with relatively limited buying activity supporting it could be quite significant. That does not mean it doesn't bounce back later, but it does mean we could have some bad surprises. Why do you think markets are complacent? Is it because actually there's a lot of passive investment and so it's very difficult to, to price in? Or is it that traders are young? Or, that, or that we've just never seen anything like this before? Well, I, I do think there are, there are a number of factors. One, we have a, a wall of cash that has been absorbing any correction within a certain period of time, that continues. Uh, if you look, uh, private equity have over a trillion to invest and they're driving M&A this year. That's cash. Uh, we secondly, people have leverage because people who haven't have actually underperformed and that continues. Um, and the underlying economic is solid, um, it, it, it's booming. So all of that is positive, however, all of that is already priced in into stock prices. It's already priced in. And people have, have not been able to make any money from being negative. They have made money from continuing to be positive. That's what concerns us. We've seen it in a number of cases where we have reactions on a specific stock or on a specific situation. People bleed because there is no absorbing shock. Having said that, as I said, we're going to see more volatility. We expect in Q3 some pullback, but we expect to finish the year up. Okay, but you're not uh, predicting in any way, shape, or form a recession, right? A recession that would be the end of the cycle, coupled with the central bank mistake or anything like that? At this point in time, absolutely not. What do your clients ask of you? Well, I think it, it, it's the difference between an economy and a background that is very buoyant yeah. and markets which are a lot more volatile and how do you navigate that? and specifically in Europe and, uh, and in the UK, um, events that are keeping this geographic area, this block behind the US and the emerging market blocks. So what's the if you look at M&A and deal flow in Europe, how's, it, how's that going? Actually, that's going quite well. Uh, people think they can extract synergies, reposition their portfolio, 
uh, improve their prospects, become more efficient by merging and taking out cost or refocusing the way they do business. So that has been quite good and actually we're set to have a record year this year and Europe in particular is driving that, that trend. Um, so I do think the fundamentals are quite good. It, it's just that day after day the market environment is quite volatile and uh, and, and, and filled with uncertainties that we don't know how to price. How do you price trade wars? How do you price Brexit? How do you price protectionism? How do you price um, events in Italy over the budget? Uh, you try to price them, but actually it's very difficult to forecast and to adapt to it. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. That is Andrea Orcelli there, the president of UBS Investment Bank. The tweet of the day two days ago, you think of the president, you think of, you know, different celebrities and the like. 36 on the front nine today, my best nine holes ever. Back nine, not so great. Got too excited. We welcome Douglas Cass with hands of steel. What was it like, Doug, on the 12th hole after you did a 36 on the front nine? I didn't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> honest with you you didn't do a it was in a it was in a tournament as well yeah you didn't do a tom watson like you did uh in britain here folks this by the way this 36 on the front nine occurred at the south florida science center and aquarium mini (laughs) golf course in west palm beach florida (laughs) i prefer talking about golf than the yankees who are seven games behind in the win column and three down in the loss column we call that doing a mets pim fox why don't you you bring in our steam guest yeah, Doug, uh, Doug Cass of Seabreeze yes. uh, uh, Partners. Yeah, Doug, I want you to uh, remind our listeners who was Ace Greenberg and why yeah. should you? Uh, why should everybody remember uh, how to sell a big position? <laughs> Ace Greenberg was the um, legendary and iconic uh, chairman of the board of Bear Stearns. Um, he um, he left the board. He left his chairmanship well before, I might add, the problems arose in 2007 and 2008. And his idea, he had many, many, um, I wrote a piece on real money and uh, a load of my real money posse um, in which I, which I talked about some of his legendary quotes. And one of those quotes was about selling. And when you have to sell something, you go on the floor and you say, I have this to sell. What can you do? Why is that important now? It's it's dangerous. Well, it was important then uh, when you had people manning the specialist booths. It's uh, less important today. In fact, you could create a flash crash in a market dominated by uh, passive funds, including exchange-traded funds, and, of course, the machines and algos, which um, control the quantitative strategy. Yeah. Doug, I've never asked this question before. I did not ask it of Mr. Greenberg. I thought it'd be too impolite. Let me ask it of you with your heritage on the street. Would Bear Stearns have gone under if Mr. Greenberg had been younger, more vital, and more uh, in charge of the company? More engaged. No way, Jose. Why not? No. Um, He would have been, you know, read that piece about his 
his missives about controlling costs yeah. and making sure about the qual the quality right. of uh, what's on their asset the asset side of Bear Stearns' balance sheet. Um, he was a stickler for details. Yes, and it appears that the management that uh, followed him were not so. Yeah. Doug, let me switch gears here to your important tweet that you did on Elon Musk. Mr. Is it Einhorn? Uh, Pim, help me. Yes, yeah. Einhorn's yes. David, Einhorn. Einhorn's David Einhorn of Greenlight. Yeah. Okay, we're talking, folks, to Doug Cass, and a lot of people go after Cass, and I'm going to protect him here, because when you're Warren Buffett and you want one mouthy guy on the street with enough smarts and experience to go to Omaha to actually ask intelligent questions, you ask Doug Cass. That's what Mr. Buffett did with all its philanthropy over the years. Would you go to a Tesla annual meeting to ask Mr. Musk questions? Um, I think Warren Buffett is the most sane, um, value-added, intelligent investor in modern history. Um, and I think, by contrast, Elon Musk is off the reservation. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I spent seven hours asking Warren questions in the annual meeting of 2014 in, in Omaha of Berkshire Hathaway. I was respectful and courteous. I did a, months of research with my analysts about the sort of questions I wanted to ask and the structure of those questions. Um, and uh, Char- both Charlie and Warren gave uh, wonderful responses and and um, responded directly to my questions. Um, and I suspect that if I did the same at a Tesla annual meeting, I would not get quite the same response. I don't think you, you'd get you to might eat recall, the hors You might recall his, um, his, his conference call following the last earnings in which he dismissed analysts and was extremely rude and curt. You would never see that from Charlie or Warren. I think you wouldn't be allowed to eat the peanuts at the annual meeting. Correct. Tell us. And about in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, the um, the uh, cherry coke and the uh, peanut butter brittle. Are investors being compensated for taking risk in the market right now? No, I think tops are processes, and we may very well be in that process now. Um, Why do you believe that? Well, I, the search of value uh, and comparing it to the risk taken at its core is the marriage of a contrarian streak, which I think I have, and a calculator. Um, there's an adage, the Wall Street adage, that says tops are bottom, uh, tops are processes, bottoms are events, at least most of the time. And if you look at an ice cream cone's profile, the top is generally rounded yep. and the bottom is V-shaped. This is how tops and bottoms often look in the market. Um, I think that it's important to gauge the possibility that the market may be making an important top, but right. it's even more important, Pim, to distill based upon fundamental inputs what the market's okay. reward versus risk is. And on, there are growing fundamental and technical list of signposts that suggest the market uh, is in the process of making a top and that the risks dwarf the rewards. Have you sold long positions? I've sold everyone. Last Monday I sold – I did something – so extreme that I've never done before. I sold every one of my uh, equity long positions. I do have some trading longs, uh, which I put on in the interim interval, like CBS. Um, right. But, but um, uh, uh, I am uh, materially out of the market in a net short position now. Well, we're going to come back with Doug Cass. It's really nice that he could continue with us in this half hour because I know he's booked at the South Florida Science Center at Aquarium, West Palm Beach, Florida mini golf course. Have you ever been there, Doug? 
I have. You've been there. <laughs> not to the, to, to the center, not the mini golf course. Not to the mini golf course. Very good. We're going to come back with Doug Casson. Uh... For, those, for those of you on yeah, par, par 12. He slices just past the windmill. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.